0: podcast doors house it's kubrick's universe the stanley kubrick
1: podcast hello and welcome back to kubrick's universe i am gal your artificially intelligent host in today's show, we'll be speaking with Mick Broderick, in what will be the first in a series of episodes about a new book called, The Kubrick Legacy, which has been edited by Mick. Mick Broderick is Associate Professor of Media Analysis at Murdoch University. His major publications include, Reconstructing Strange Love, Editions of the Reference Work Nuclear Movies, and as editor or co-editor, on Cinema, Interrogating Trauma, and Trauma, Media, Art, New Perspectives, He is currently completing two co-authored monographs, Trauma and Disability in Mad Max with Katie Ellis, and Virtual Realities, Case Studies in Immersion, Aesthetics and Affect, with Stuart Bender, both for release in 2019. Without further ado, let's get this show on the road, as I pass you over to our show's producer Steven, followed by our regular host Jason. Enjoy the chat listeners.
2: We're on the call to have a chat about your new book, The Kubrick Legacy. I've read that recently. It's a great book. Uh, I noticed that the book is dedicated to Katharina. Would that be Katharina Kubrick?
3: Absolutely. Katharina has been very helpful. She was uh, really the person that got me in contact and got my Reconstructing Strange Love monograph started way back in uh, 2001, I think it was. Uh, partly as a result of um, some emails on the uh, Alt Movies Kubrick discussion group. Yeah. And that basically led to having a conversation about um, coming to Chittigbury in 2004, uh, having two weeks there looking at the uh, extant Kubrick Doctor Strangelove archive that had yet to be. Uh, annotated and then lodged in the Stanley Kubrick Archive. Okay. So, uh, yeah, Katharina was fantastic. Um, She introduced me to Jan and to Christiana. And she's been very supportive along the way. And I think part of the thing that she has been doing over the past 20 years is really, um, you know, reaching out to Kubrick fans and Kubrick scholars and providing either introductions or at least – some um, understanding and correction of the mythology about her dad
2: hmm yeah I think that is the case And I mean uh, Christiane um, Stanley's uh, wife was kind of doing a lot of the uh, promotional stuff weren't she and uh, reaching out
3: I think there's a bit of passing on of the of the baton so to speak yeah um, but one of the nice things is that there's many digital uh, video interviews with Christiane and of course with Jan and and with uh, Katharina as well. So, you know, there's now amassed, as part of that Kubrick legacy, quite a significant amount of uh, digital material that uh, fans, scholars, uh, newbies Mm. can come across online. And it's part of the Kubrick generosity of that family to open themselves up to not only discussions about Stanley's life and work, um, but also, importantly for me, to correcting some of the mythology and uh, the media cliches about Kubrick, and that's something that um, aspects of the of the Kubrick legacy anthology sought to address. I think it's important also to um, let people understand that this is quite a quite a, a lean uh, collection. There's only six chapters, but really what it does is it complements an earlier anthology of post Kubrick uh, writing that. I edited for Screening the Past in uh, 2017. So really these two things can be regarded as complementary volumes. So, you know, I don't want people to be shocked or surprised that this uh, thin Routledge <laughs> volume is meant to be a testament to Kubrick's um, legacy. It's it's really just an an additional contribution. Um, and some of that was based on a range of papers that were given at the Leicester oh, yeah. uh, conference. Uh, which you know was was fantastic at being a catalyst for a whole range of Kubrick scholarship and and, and Kubrick fandom. Um, so we really the the idea of this was to try and get the publication out quickly, and the Routledge series um, enabled a quick turnaround. Even though I was a little bit tardy as the editor, um, to come out in time for for Stanley's the anniversary of his of his death. Yeah. Um, and also in the lead-up to some of the major exhibitions and the 20th anniversary of Eyes Wide Shut, for example. Mm. Um, It also culminated around the idea of a lot of attention and focus on the anniversary of 2001. So there was a great deal of attention that was being generated around Kubrick's work, really a generation after his passing. So 20 years is a kind of notional sense of a generation. And, of course, as we all know, as Kubrick fans, listeners will understand that there is so much popular culture reference uh, to Kubrick's work beyond the generation that was born Hmm. um, in the time when he was a creative artist. So a lot of people are now coming to Kubrick's work outside of the lived experience of a a commercial cinema exhibition of, of, of his films. So the idea was to think about how um, Kubrick's life and legacy impacted across culture. So the first chapter is by Drew Jeffries, looking at the the curation of um, the Kubrick exhibition, which has been touring um, nearly for 15-plus years around the world, fantastic exhibition um, that the Kubrick estate, the Kubrick family uh, have coordinated and it's been travelling to major cities around the world and it will be in London, or it's, a, it's currently in London. Not sure when this is going to air.
2: Yes, it, uh, um, it opened on Friday the 26th of April.
3: Right. So one of the things that Drew is doing in his essay is looking at how particular uh, venues that are putting on the exhibition curate it specifically. So it's not as if it's a cookie-cutter approach to the Kubrick collection in this exhibition each venue will mount it and display it. They'll have sidebar events, whether that's guest speakers, uh, Kubrick collaborators, or particular um, film screenings, um, as well as the type of merchandising that occurs around the exhibition. So Jeffrey is really interested in the way how uh, Stanley Kubrick is presented in different places. Yeah, yeah. Through the, through the lens of the uh, Toronto in- International Film Festival staging mm. of the exhibition. So he interviews the uh, Toronto International Film Festival staff, looks at the curatorial practices, and how it kind of creates this sense once Kubrick's passed, there's this artifactual presence. So there's this kind of nice sense of um, almost this aura of Kubrick that exists mm. in these curatorial exhibitions. Yeah. Um, the second chapter is by Graham Allen, uh, who looks at, uh, well, his chapter is called The Rise of Dr. Strangelove, Stanley Kubrick, Peter George, Herman Kahn, and a New World Morality. So what Allen does is look at how Kubrick worked closely with an author, an established author in Peter George, his process of adaptation of, uh, Red Alert to become, uh, the novel of Doctor Strange Love, but of course, more importantly, the collaborative screenplay. And what uh, he, what Graham uh, Allen concentrates on, is his subsequent novel, Commander One, which uh, also deals with the idea of nuclear war and survival. So it's really a kind of follow-up, almost like a se- a sequel to Doctor Strange Love, um, and. He, he details how, how Peter George's collaboration with Kubrick really informed his understanding and visualization of the idea of the type of mindset that was understanding that how would one survive a, a nuclear war and a global nuclear holocaust. Okay, And the kind of continued urge towards, you know, a fascist uh, authoritarian regime, even in some kind of survival scenario. So... What, what Graham Ellen is doing is looking at that influence that collaborative influence between uh, a writer and Kubrick and how that affected the, the writer's later work. Yeah. And you can see this with other collaborators, you know whether it be Terry Southern, with um, Blue Movie or other, other, other authors.
2: Mm. interesting. I think I think, uh, I think Jason's just joined us. I think he has.
3: Hey, how are you doing, Jason?
2: Great, Mick, How are you?
3: Yeah, good. I hear um, you're you're not one for uh, the the morning hours. <laughs> You've been working late.
4: That I generally do work late, but that's okay. I wasn't going to miss the chance to speak with guest number one. <laughs> <laughs> our
3: our well, very I'm first, a... yeah, yeah.
4: Our very I, first I guest,
3: we'll airline lounge.
4: So no uh, drink trolley going by, or do you have that going. Uh, you have that at home anyway.
3: If only. (laughs) (laughs) So the third chapter by uh, Christine Gangaro is called Looking Back, Looking Ahead, uh, Kubrick and Music. So uh, what Christine does is look at what we all know is one of the most significant legacies of Kubrick's artistic contribution to cinema, and that's his unique uh, use of found music, existing scores, uh, soundtracks, music and um, its application in his film scenarios. So uh, Christine Gingara also makes it clear that Kubrick also inherited this tradition from earlier film styles and film works, but what he did was something quite revolutionary and different. And she also considers how Kubrick's own application of this essentially, you know, existing musical uh, material being introduced into his films greatly influenced people like, you know, Terry Malek or Marty mm-hmm. Scorsese. Mm-hmm. And in particular, after 2001, uh, it really kind of set the standard for a lot of contemporary and ongoing filmmakers' use of existing scores. Uh, another interesting chapter is something that's probably going to be a little bit controversial, and that's uh, Manka Perko's Dramatising Kubrick. Room 237, and Other Conspiracies. Mm -hmm. So what Mank is doing in this chapter is looking at Rodney Asher's documentary, Room 237, as I'm sure many of us have seen, if not Mm -hmm. all of us have seen, Mm -hmm. and thinks about it um, in relation to other kind of conspiracy theories that circulate in popular culture, particularly, you know, the YouTube videos that that prop up from time to time, such as, you know, Kubrick's alleged confession around, you know, Mm -hmm. fake Mm But but Perko kind of approaches this debate from classical critical theory, the idea that amateur analysis, fan-based analysis has its place, but in actual fact, you know, the idea of uh, social media replicating these memes or these tropes or these ideas that lead towards conspiracy really undervalues critical interpretation and the scholarly, scholarly traditions uh, upon which they're founded. What Manka is doing is saying that there's too much uh, overinterpretation or perhaps mm. misinterpretation in mm-hmm. these texts. And by going back to fundamentals of uh, scholarly criticism, mm-hmm. you can really separate the wheat from the chaff. Uh, and, of course, our very own James Marinaccio's chapter, uh, Kubrick Tropes and Advertising, is a compendium, really a kind of uh, topography of all the television advertising that references Kubrick films, probably going back to the 1980s. So James has done this wonderful amassing of various television advertising, and it's specifically about TV ads. There are a few references to print ads, but you know this chapter would be enormous had it you know, being all-encompassing of all the types yeah, of it. Yeah, He specifically looks at, you know, homage and influences, and most of these are relating to 2001 and The Shining, but pretty much most of Kubrick's era mm. is uh, approached and referenced. And, you know, again, it gives you a sense of the recycling and the ongoing resonance of Kubrick's legacy in popular culture through television advertising. Mm -hmm. And my own essay, Kubrick on Screen, does a little bit of that in that um, I'm trying to present not a comprehensive overview of every time Kubrick's appeared on screen, but to give a sense of the breadth and diversity or, in some instances, the lack of material there is about Kubrick on screen. But (laughs) approaching it from a couple of perspectives, one is documentary footage. The other is the fictional representations of Kubrick on film, Mm. and also uh, Kubrick's two performances on camera, one of which is this little understood um, film from 1947, and, of course, his well-known acceptance speech of the D.W. Griffith Award um, towards the end of his career. So that's really the overview of, of the book, the chapters, and part of the agenda that I mentioned earlier was to kind of complement existing works around post-Kubrick, the Kubrick legacy at a time where it is, it's, it's a fantastic time to be a Kubrick scholar. Mm, you know, if you think no. about not only the scholarship that's been generated, but Kubrick Alia is everywhere online. Yeah. You, know, you can get a hold of all types of artefacts, uh, former scripts, um, annotated, you know, interviews, all of these things are appearing online at auction houses.
5: Indeed.
4: There's
3: fan-based art work that's out there circulating, um, you know, music videos, songs, cultural exhibitions, musical performances. You know, there's such a rich array of references to Kubrick's work uh, and how it's impacted popular culture and continues to. Uh,
4: with the, the amount of Kubrickania that's out there, in the age of social media is truly like, you know, enough to boggle the mind considering uh, how little uh, footage there is, as we can tell, you know, even still, there's roughly about 30 or 40 minutes, uh, you know, out there for public consumption. Why do you think that there's so little footage of Stanley?
3: Yeah, very good question. I think, um, you know, part of that final chapter of mine is to, Look at that material, um, mainly in terms of content analysis, but also to suggest that even though there's very little of it, there's some very telling features about that. So, you know, there are a number of newsreel clips of Kubrick at the Lolita opening, at the 2001 opening.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: Uh, there's behind the scenes footage of around 2001. Uh, of course, there's Vivian Kubrick's uh, footage from her Shining documentary and material that was unedited, never kind of compiled into documentary form around Full Metal Jacket. Um, and nevertheless, this gives kind of fascinating insights, um, but also the, the great uh, Stanley Kubrick, Life in Pictures documentary that Jan Harlan put together shortly yes. after Stanley's passing has fantastic clips of, of Kubrick's family life. You know, mm-hmm. Stanley sitting around with, with the kids Um, discussing all kinds of things. And occasionally there are things on uh, YouTube or various Kubrick news group feeds that show behind the scenes, uh, you know, little glimpses of documentaries of Kubrick at Chittickbury or elsewhere, you know, talking about new digital cameras or computer setups and things like that. So there are these little pepperings of insights into Kubrick's Uh, daily life you know the everyday as opposed to you know the mythological status and the cliches that surround Kubrick so Mm -hmm. I was very interested in trying to kind of unpick uh, what there is as you say there's not very much footage but it is quite insightful in the context of uh, how he approached his public persona guarding Mm -hmm. his public persona and uh, how perhaps Had he been a little bit more um, on screen, that uh, may have actually eliminated a lot of these cliches and mythologies that were Mm. perpetuated, particularly by the British press, um, from the mid-70s onwards.
4: Do you think it's because um, he was living in England and uh, steadfastly refusing untold numbers of uh, interviews from the British press uh, specifically? (laughs)
3: I think, you know, the perfect storm was the controversy around Clockwork Orange.
5: Mm-hmm.
3: And um from you know Doctor Strange Love onwards, uh, Kubrick wasn't interested in promoting the films on camera, on right. television himself. And Christiana told me quite clearly that he, he thought he was totally inept at that. He thought he'd be not able to speak spontaneously or sound like a fool. So there's a kind of self-consciousness, which I think a lot of us have, obviously. Mm. Um, even though he was in the profession mm. of having actors speak lines or improvising or what have you, he himself uh, f- found uh, something inadequate in his own capacity to do that, which is somewhat ironic, given <laughs> when you hear these audio interviews of his uh, uh, of his uh, discussions with various critics and people over over the decades, he's incredibly oh. articulate
4: and and eloquent, and I, I mean, I've said to uh, people, if you look at uh, the printed uh, text of a conversation like the ones he had with Jeremy Bernstein, if you transfer it to paper and you read it, I mean they are complete and well thought out, well put together sentences, <laughs> where commas should be and semicolons and to, and you know to the period. Absolutely.
3: Um, I mean, you know, wouldn't we all like to be that autodidact that can just yeah, yeah. You know, stream, stream of consciousness with such eloquence and such intelligence? But it's this is also, but it's antithetical to talk shows or to the one or two minute uh, news grab. Yes. You know, trying to kind yes. of, you know, put a punchline in or, you know, some kind of sound bite that we know television and um, other forms of entertainment media. You know, when you see these longer, uh, interviews, you get that sense of that mind that is, um, you know, quite significant and the issues and the complexity of them, which don't distill down into you know little bon mots or
5: yeah
4: or yeah.
3: satellites. So I can understand why he was reluctant to do that. But I think also, as Christiana has has mentioned, there was a self consciousness that he didn't think he was very good at it, whereas a lot of actors and entertainers are.
4: So the. Uh- The chapter that, uh, well, the part where you cover the fictionalized portrayals of Kubrick by actors. I'm wondering if you can tell us uh, a bit about these and why, and whether or not you think any of them captured him accurately or not.
3: Yeah, well, there's there's not really a lot, but uh, they're quite interesting. I mean, the the earliest one is the production "Strangers Kiss." from 1983, directed by um, Matthew Chapman. Movies are like dreams. There's no
0: rules. Sometimes you don't want to wake up and see yourself as you really are. Make her happy. That's
1: all I want to understand. The character that you would be playing is part of a boxer falls in
2: love with a dance hall girl.
0: Merrill Redding, Stephen Blake.
2: take you up Scene eight, take two. Marker. you love Nice girl. Could be. But don't be too cautious. Hey, you were good. Sorry. She is so beautiful. Don't sleep while you eat, kid. We could become like Bogart and
3: like Tracy and Hepburn. You and me, we have rapport.
2: You behave in yourself. He's a very dangerous man. Stanley, this is life I'm talking about! He's putting one of his damn dudes on the set!
5: What about the kid?
2: What about him?
1: Ow! I wish this picture would never end. I wish you would stay with me tonight. Maybe he's
2: watching you. A story of broken hearts and Hollywood dreams. Strangers Kiss. A silver
3: screen romance. And This this is a kind of riff almost in this kind of neo-noir 1980s nostalgia um, for noirish type films. So it's a a play on the production of Killer's Kiss and uh, Peter Coyote plays this fictive director called Stanley Um, and Peter Coyote doesn't sound or look anything like Stanley Kubrick but in a sense for the film it's not really that important. It's about this wannabe director who has this great vision um and he wants to kind of inspire his low-budget cast in this low-budget film to make great art Mm -hmm. so um you know curiosity's you know absolutely plausible as that type of director but it's, it's light years away from what we knew and what the filmmakers at the time would have known stanley kubrick was like because You know, there were plenty of photographs of Kubrick. Uh, There were plenty of interviews with Kubrick, even though they were rare. Mm. Clearly, this is homage. So the filmmakers knew um, enough about Stanley Kubrick. But I don't think they were trying to do some mimetic replicant of Stanley Kubrick, but perhaps trying to play with the idea of 1950s low-budget filmmaking and doing their own, you know, postmodern 1980s riff on it. I don't think it's a particularly successful film. Um, In fact, it's quite turgid, but, uh, you know, it's it's a curio and worth looking at
4: Um, Were there other examples that uh, I mean good or bad that came to mind?
3: Sure, well, I I think Probably the closest and one of the more recent ones is is Stanley Tukey uh, Mm and the life and death of Peter Sellers
5: Good evening, Mr. Sellers
4: You nearly gave me a heart attack.
0: (laughs) You're a hard man to get a hold of.
5: Not really.
4: Linda, I'd like you to meet Stanley Kubrick.
5: It's nice to meet you.
0: So, uh, Peter, Columbia won't let
2: me make my next picture without you. Awfully insightful of them. What's the part? All of them.
4: What, the whole film? Boys, let's get this thing on the hump. We got some flying to do. Flatter. I'm not playing a bomber pilot. What can I do with that crammed in
0: there? Oh, look. Let me just hear it again. Let me hear it again.
4: Three characters is enough. Three is a good number. You're being paid for four. You're stretching me too thin, Stanley. Who do you think I am? think I am. I think you're whoever I want you to be.
0: Then who am I now? Peter, have you ever heard of mutually assured destruction?
4: I'm a few bars and I'll join in. It refers to when both sides of an atomic conflict are so powerful that if either side were to take action, it would inevitably result in the total
0: annihilation of all concerned. I find this concept can be applied to many situations. You're a peculiar fucker, Stan. Wait,
3: Peter? Peter. Again, he doesn't particularly look like Kubrick. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's set around the filming of Doctor Strange, like mostly. Uh, he looks more like a gangster, but you know he, he does kind of dress in dark clothes and he hovers about. And there's a little bit of, I guess, social awkwardness that um, many of the interviews would would talk about. Kubrick, a little bit of shyness or perhaps a, a caginess about not revealing too much about his project. Um, but one of the really weird things about that film is Jeffrey Rush ends up playing Stanley. Tukey playing Stanley Kubrick (laughs) in this almost, you could blink and you miss it, transition inside a car. And um, so, you know, there are these nice um, gestures towards the chameleon aspect of uh, Peter Sellers.
4: Sellers would have loved that. I mean, it's like meta-meta acting.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that kind of malleability... Um, but of course, what it doesn't do is it, it doesn't kind of play on the idea of the, right. um, the improvisation right. or the kind of dramatic range. But nevertheless, I mean, Tukey's there again, more or less as a uh, very much a, a, a bit part in the overall mm-hmm. narrative arc of uh, Peter Seller's life. Right. Um, but what I didn't do was look at short films like, you know, the, the recent film about Kubrick. And the the use of light for Barry Lyndon, you know, the short film.
5: Oh, David
4: um, O'Reilly, David O'Reilly's film Kubrick by candlelight.
3: Yeah, yeah. So I didn't touch on that, but I I, I gesture to it in a footnote here or there. But I mean, you know, there are a couple of other things like that. There are other shorts. You know, there's obviously the odd um, music video that invokes Kubrick. But again, on a, on a kind of um, meta narrative, you have Kalamak Kubrick, where John Melkovich plays. Um, Um,
4: Oh, Alan Alan Conway
3: Yeah, the confidence tricks that Alan Conway Yeah Um, And so it's a marvellous performance But again, of course, it's light years away from what Kubrick is And the whole idea And this was written by uh, Stanley's long-time uh, collaborator and uh, assistant, Tony Mm -hmm. Fruin Mm
5: -hmm.
3: Um, You know, the persona that Conway was adopting to swindle people out of money or what have you (laughs) <laughs> was nothing like what Kubrick's public persona was about either. He was just a conference trickster, but it's a, it's a, it's a fairly, um, you know, humorous rendition, but also kind of fairly poignant about, you know, the self-destructive nature of that type of artifice.
0: Mm. So,
3: And for people who haven't seen that, it's definitely worth seeing.
2: And uh, who are you? What's your name? I didn't catch your name. I'm not who you think I am. Who is he then? I'm Stanley Kubrick, the film director. Stanley Kubrick? The film director. Yes, I must say there's another one. (laughs) It's just staggering. (laughs) Over the moon I am.
1: Very pleased to meet you, Mr. Kubrick.
2: Stanley, please.
1: Are you working on another movie?
2: It's 3001, A Space Odyssey. And who have you got? John Malkovich in the lead. John who? Yes, a personal friend of Stanley Kubrick's. How can you not have heard of him? He's a famous film director. Um 2001: Space Odyssey, uh The Shining, um clockwork orange have either of you boys got any cash on you rich people never have any cash on them do they i mean it's vulgar i was wondering if either of you could possibly cash a personal check sure that is perfect that is absolutely perfect oh do you have the receipt come to see stanley Kubrick. there's no man of that name here we know no, he lives there. Who's got
3: in it, Stan? And little
2: Tommy Cruz would like a part. Madonna wants in, but I told her, Madonna, stick to the singing. My client, as you know, has lost many thousands of pounds. Who's Stanley. I think you and I need a bit of a chat. I've been very naughty boy. John Malkovich. I'm, I'm Stanley Kubrick. I'm Stanley Kubrick. I'm Stanley Kubrick. Colin Kubrick.
0: A truer story. I'm Stanley Kubrick and all the
3: Stanley You know the scene where they're in the hospital and um uh Conway Allah is protesting that he's Stanley Kubrick and suddenly all the other inmates in the hospital start saying, I'm Stanley Kubrick, you know, like I'm <laughs>
5: It's
4: brilliant. It's so yeah, yeah. brilliant. I, I- I'm, I was sure uh, Malkovich took on the role because uh, he, he's that kind of actor. It strikes me as seeing something there that he wanted to really get into and um, put his own imprimatur on it, his own stamp. Because I, uh, I yeah, I think there's a, there's some uh, footage of and interviews of Alan Conway that have been on the Internet for some time. And I wondered if he went and looked at this guy and having been a Kubrick fan himself, Malkovich might have said like, oh, I got to do this movie. <laughs>
3: yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I mean, Conway um, versus Malkovich. I mean, they're, they're also light years apart, but of yeah. course, Malkovich just, he runs with this role and it's the flamboyance is, you know, he's yeah. so over the top as it should be. <laughs> it's great.
4: Yeah. I would recommend it to people as well. It's worth, it's worth a view. Um, and, and if, you know, someone has never heard of that story of, uh, you know, Conway uh, just be, being a confidence man, how perfect is that? His name is Conway, and he's a con yes, man. Yes. <laughs> That's right. I mean, I only knew about, I learned about it the first time only a few years ago. And, you know, it was just like, what? Wait a minute. <laughs>
3: yeah, yeah. I mean, you can't make this stuff up.
5: Right,
3: right. <laughs> and, and speaking um, of making stuff up, and this this follows on, I guess, from um, Manka Perko's chapter. I don't know whether you've seen um, Robert Sheenan's portrayal in Moonwalkers, you know, yeah. the, uh, the idea of um, Kubrick uh, f- filming, faking the the moon landing, the CIA, you know, part of this improbable plot. Oh,
4: yeah.
3: Uh, but, but you have this kind of skinny bearded hippie. <laughs> <laughs> pretending to impersonate Kubrick to try and get the funds from the CIA. So, you know, again, it's it's not a particularly successful film as both parody or historical alternative history, but it has its moments, and there's lots of references to, to Kubrick's cinema uh, throughout the film. July
2: 1969, ten days before the first man on the moon. The mission is fraught with technical problems. The head of the CIA decides to send a special agent to London to find Stanley Kubrick. to kill everyone. And ask him to secretly shoot a fake moon landing
3: in case the real one fails. There, there, there really aren't that many uh, direct, overt references to Kubrick um, as a character.
2: I've just remembered another one, actually, when... Um, Do you remember that? I think it was called Trapped Ashes, kind of like an anthology film. Ken Russell directed one of them. Monty Hellman directed a segment called Stanley's Girlfriend. And there was a young actor in there playing a young Stanley Kubrick.
3: Ah.
2: I think someone's trapped us in here. Four stories of terror. Five renowned Hollywood directors. Written by Dennis Bartok. One terrifying anthology of horror. You're a wildcat, girl. Yeah!
5: (laughs) We're never going to get out of here. ashes
2: that came to mind because when you mentioned the hospital scene in Cullumy Kubrick director Ken Russell is in one of those beds I'm Stanley Kubrick. and Ken Russell actually directed one of the segments in that anthology just a oh, wow. spurious uh, connection there <laughs> that's kind of wow. cool though love it well uh, I-, I
4: wanted to ask about uh, Since you touched upon it already, um, Kubrick as a performer and uh, the final part of your chapter, I believe, covers Kubrick actually performing to a camera. Now, there is this brand new revelation here as yet unknown to the wider public. Kubrick was at the age of 19 and while he was still a photographer in New York, appeared in a feature film which got released in 1947 called Dreams That Money Can Buy. Wow. What, uh, if anything, can you tell us about this performance?
3: Well, well, first off, it was uh, Tony Fruin who put me onto this, and um, he told me that he'd only discovered this after Stanley's passing and that, and that Stanley had never mentioned to him this film. So the eagle eye of Tony Fruin Uh, picked out a very young Stanley Kubrick as an extra in this film. And when he told me, of course, I I rushed to find it online. So this was directed by Hans Richter um, over a period of, uh, well, it started during the war, 1943 to 47. So this was a low-budget New York production uh, with a lot of leading European émigré artists, many of them surrealists, that decided to uh, work on an anthology of a range of short stories, short, you know, dramatic um, scenarios, roughly around the idea of psychoanalysis and um, revelations that dreams might lead to artistic expression and revelations of, you know, the unconscious mind. So, um, where, where Kubrick comes into this is. Um Richter was working uh, teaching at City University in New York, and Kubrick, at some point,, um, while he was working at Look, undertook a range of, uh, you know evening classes at, at Cooney And I think that's probably where he came, a- came across Richter's, you know call out to people to come and help work on this film, because it was an incredibly low budget uh amateur production amateur in the sense that it was not professional it wasn't studio based and this gave kubrick i I argue an introduction not only to um you know the avant-garde filmmaking scene in new york immediately post-war but also gave him a sense of seeing how low budget films could work over a long period of time um working with non-professional actors with friends and um, there were a couple of insights. You know, the, these these were you no know, bit bit uh, players. You had people like Max Ernst, Man Ray, Marcel Duchamp, Fernand Leger, mm. Alexander Calder working on these scenarios, creating um, uh, the the set design. Uh, people like John Cage were doing the avant-garde scores. Mm. So you know, an incredible anthology of. Um, Cutting edge collaboration in that post war period. Uh, it was partly funded by Peggy Guggenheim. So, oh. um, hmm. how about that? And, and what you get to see in this very brief sequence um, is Stanley Kubrick sitting next to his girlfriend at the time, his soon to be wife, Toba Metz, hmm. in an audience in a, a suburban screening of a film, which is actually a Man Ray film. And you get these shots of Kubrick and and Toba and uh, basically it's a sequence in which uh, a a surrealist performance and screening takes part. So you get these cutaways to Kubrick acting Mm -hmm. out along with the other characters in this kind of absurdist mode where there's a projection of Man Ray on screen moving about in an animated fashion and – there's a kind of uh, a promoter who stands up and asks the audience to kind of comply with what they're saying. So oh. the, the, it's an interactive form of, of cinema yeah. where yeah. the audience move about um, in these exaggerated sequences. And you can see Cl- uh, Kubrick in, in close-up in a range of these shots. But also what's important about this, uh, this film is the third sequence or the third dream is called Ruth, Roses and Revolvers, and that um, features his uh future second wife, Ruth Sabotka,
5: mm-hmm. so not
3: only do you have Kubrick and Metz in this film, but you also have his future wife wife Ruth Sabotka, mm-hmm. so it's kind of astounding that um this has gone unrecognized for all these years, so uh,
4: I would say so, from,
3: but apart from this kind of performative you know very amateurish you know bit part um uh, extra that, that Kubrick and the others play. Um, there's also some resonances with, uh, you know, the, the mannequin sequence in, in Killer's Kiss because one of the dream sequences, uh, the girl with a prefabricated heart, which is Dream 2, starts off with this kind of dismembered number of store dummies that come together in this almost ballet mechanique uh, stop-motion sequence so, you know, I'm not suggesting that this is a direct influence on Kubrick, but perhaps, again, <laughs> in the context of um, psychoanalysis, there may be some subconscious influence. Absolutely. It was very formative, and perhaps maybe something resonated with him about using those dismembered store dummies later in, uh, in Killer's Kiss. You know, where where these influences stem from, it's entirely speculative. I mean, even when you have artists declare themselves
5: that
3: this is the the direct influence, well, you know, sometimes people say things that are either erroneous, or they may say it for whatever reason, or it may be entirely true according to their perception, but I guess, you know, there's that tension between, you know, critical analysis, historical reconstruction, um, the truth may be somewhere in between all of these things.
4: Right. Indeed, I, in fact, it had only occurred to me to uh, to think of that in the way you described uh, the mannequins. I have not seen this scene uh, yet that you're referring to, but uh, I always do come back to um, a certain Twilight Zone episode, the one where the the, the gal yes. goes into the department store and yeah. the mannequins, and a- every time I watch that, I, I I ask myself, like, did did Kubrick see this episode? Did he like this episode? I can't. It's as you said. It could be pure conjecture. Somewhere in between, like, might lie the truth. I'm always thinking, like, did he see it? You know, would he like it? Because I just see uh, a lot of Stanley in that episode, and of, of course, I mean that in the best way.
3: Well, again, I mean, if you think about um, *A Clockwork Orange* and the the milk bar, the kind of mannequins in that, the, mm-hmm. uh, you know, there's there's references to statuesque people, you know, throughout much of his films, and that's both, you know, human and non-human. Mm. So, yeah, I think this is probably a, a theme that um, was fairly pervasive or certainly a visual iconographic uh, trope that he returned to. But it may or may not be, um, you know, the origin of that may or may or not be this uh, this film from 1947, mm. but certainly the opening sequence uh, before the dummies literally kind of come together and addressed and dance in this ballet when mm-hmm. they're dismembered, um, there is a kind of strong resonance. I, I, I argue with, uh, killer's kiss,
4: you know, um, I'm just going to add this in that, uh, a, a friend of mine, a dear friend, uh, Alicia Atella, pointed out to me years ago, uh, that to her eye, Kubrick definitely had a type when it came to the female form and and she would uh, say they were somewhat akin to a mannequin shape. And if you look at the the gal who Alex has to do the uh, experiment with in the Ludovico treatment, the gal who gets out of the shower in The Shining, uh, even Lady Lyndon and most of the women at the uh, masked ball and eyes wide shut all very long waisted, uh, somewhat broad, uh, shoulders, a bit, you know, of a defined, uh, clavicle, the collarbone, uh, long legs. Um, if you go back, I, th- as I did, I think it's, there's something there. He definitely had a specific type and they do somewhat represent, uh, represent that, um, uh, that That standard mannequin shape that we've been seeing in department store windows for decades now. I wonder what you think of that.
3: Yeah, it's very interesting. i'm I'm writing right now a, a piece on uh, Kubrick gender and uh, sexuality. and i've been I've been contemplating these very um, ideas, Jason. So um, cool. yes. I think I think you're you're on the money, and there's a range of kind of ideas around form classical and otherwise both female and male uh, physique, Mm -hmm. and not just in terms of what you see on the screen but also the type of artwork and, you know, whether that's literally painting or sculpture or other forms that Kubrick populates Mm -hmm. his his films with. So, yeah, there are kind of ideals, there are classical, neoclassical, modernist whole range of things going on um around you know gender and um you know representation of classical cliched what have you so yeah i, mm. I can't argue with that at all in fact i'm going to be writing expansively on that soon
4: very cool um yeah i should have uh, assumed you'd have already picked up on that um uh, but i wanted to uh, ask additionally about uh what's known as his uh, final performance in front of the camera, which was done at his home. And I'm referring, of course, to his taped acceptance speech for the D.W. Griffith Award uh, that he was given at the very end of uh, his career. What what can you share with us about that, Mick?
3: Yeah, well, that D.W. Griffith uh, Award video is, is pretty interesting. One, there's the text, which is Kubrick- um speaking directly, looking down the barrel, talking to the camera, addressing mm. the audience. And there's also uh, the apparatus that led to that production. So um, you know Kubrick set it up. he was reading off cards that Leon Vitali was holding. Uh, there were any number of takes, innumerable takes, he wasn't satisfied. He, he couldn't get it and basically ran out of time. So he said, that's it, it's got to to be sent off, you know. So he wasn't actually satisfied with Mm. what he'd done. And Christiana, of course, has said, you know, quite humorously that, uh, you know, it was like he he had a a broom handle kind of stuck in him. (laughs) He he was stiff, he was very formal, he was uncomfortable, (laughs) and you can see him kind of shifting from one foot to the other, you know, touching his glasses, mm. um, a, a little bit of, you know, clearing of the throat. And it's actually not too dissimilar to when you listen to the Dr. Strangelove exhibitors' yeah. uh, narration that he does. That's funny.
4: You, I was thinking you, that. You
3: can, yeah, you can hear that same, <clears throat>
4: um, <Yep.
3: laughs> that, that hesitancy. Even though he's totally in control, he's, he's master of all of this. Yeah. Nevertheless, um, it's it's not That's not perfect.
0: I'm sorry not to be able to be with you tonight to receive this great honor of the D.W. Griffith Award. But I'm in London making Eyes Wide Shut with Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman. And just about this time, I'm probably in the car on the way to the studio. Which, as it happens, reminds me of a conversation I had with Steven Spielberg about... What was the most difficult and challenging thing about directing a film?
3: So but at the end of the day he had to he had to kind of send it off. And uh yes, Christiana related that um, you know, when he saw it on video, he just put his head in his hands and <laughs> shook his head. You know, he couldn't he couldn't believe how bad it was. Now oh, that yes. sense of self-criticism also gets back to that earlier question about how he might have felt about you know, doing a vox pop or being on a chat show or something like that, sense of inadequacy. However, when you look at the content of that very short speech, what struck me is that it's not about him. What he talks about is, you know, Steven Spielberg's anecdote about the hardest thing about being a director is...
0: And I believe Steven summed it up about as profoundly as you can. He thought... The most difficult and challenging thing about directing a film was getting out of the car. I'm sure you all know the feeling. But at the same time, anyone who has ever been privileged to direct a film also knows that although it can be like trying to write War and Peace in a bumper car in an amusement park, when you finally get it right, There are not many joys in life that can equal the feeling. Getting Getting out of the car. car.
3: (laughs) And um, the other issue, of course, is he's talking about Griffith and Griffith's legacy. So this wasn't Kubrick saying, okay, this is my moment in the sun to talk about me. He was looking at the kind of history in particular of how tough it is to be a filmmaker and what Griffith's legacy was. And, yeah, you know, the anecdote about, you know, the hubris of the myth of Icarus and Kubrick's particular spin on that, I think, really is, you know, like his self-conscious epitaph. He's, yes. he's saying this is, what, um, this is what we need to be mindful of, not just in artistic practice but probably in life.
0: I think there's an intriguing irony in naming the Lifetime Achievement Award after D.W. Griffiths, because his career was both an inspiration and a cautionary tale. His best films will always rank among the most important films ever made, and some of them made him a great deal of money. He was instrumental in transforming movies from a Nickelodeon novelty to an art form, and he originated and formalized much of the syntax of movie-making, now taken for granted. He became an international celebrity, and his patronage included many of the world's leading artists and statesmen of the time. But Griffith was always ready to take tremendous risks in his films and in his business affairs. He was always ready to fly too high. And in the end the wings of fortune proved for him, like those of Icarus, to be made of nothing more substantial than wax and feathers. And like Icarus, when he flew too close to the sun, they melted. And the man whose fame exceeded the most illustrious filmmakers of today spent the last 17 years of his life shunned by the film industry he had created. I've compared Griffith's career to the Icarus myth, but at the same time, I've never been certain whether the moral of the Icarus story should only be, as is generally accepted, don't try to fly too high, or whether it might also be thought of as forget the wax and feathers and do a better job on the wings. One thing, however, is certain. D.W. Griffith left us with an inspiring and intriguing legacy and the award in his name is one of the greatest honors a film director can receive something for which I humbly thank all of you very much.
4: And it's interesting the way you know that he, he uh, made so much of the speech about uh, Griffith, you know, the award the, uh, for whom the award was being given in the first place. Like, he had a real sense of uh reflection on that resonated with him that he was being and Clipper, given of course, yeah.
3: was, was a great um cineast himself i mean of course he
5: was,
3: he was om, an omnivore of yeah. world across mm-hmm. all genres national cinemas film styles um he he just saw it all he consumed it all so um again he's his autodidact approach wasn't just scholarship about the things he was interested in filming. I mean, Mm -hmm. cinema was in his veins, as was Mm -hmm. photography. Mm -hmm.
4: Absolutely. I I love his uh, quote. Again, I'm paraphrasing, but it's something along the lines of, uh, in the final analysis, the, the measure of what makes a film great to you is simply the affection one has for it. Something like that because there are a number of movies. I mean, Steven, you know, has teased me or others can gladly tease me that, you know, I like Disney's the black hole from 1979. I like the movie. <laughs> it's it's, if you can go online and see a whole bunch of people uh, saying Disney's worst epic failure and so forth and so on, but you know, it has a certain nostalgia uh, and a place in my heart. So, and I, I love that about Stanley that he was uh, a complete cineast for, you know, the the cinephiles that are out today. You know, kind of exploring the vast traverse of uh, all the all the movies and films that are available to be seen now. And it's really it's just incredible.
3: Yeah. Well, just just remember, this guy was doing this as a as a child and as a teenager, in the old yeah. analogue days I where know. you had to, you know, hop on the hop on the, the train or yeah. catch the bus to go in to see the cinema to watch this thing play out in eight yeah. wheels or what have you, or go to yeah. the you know, Museum of Modern Art or or you know, living living in London, you know, getting prints shipped in to him to look at. So, mm-hmm. you know, this this was kind of a massive undertaking. But I think the other thing on that around the legacy of, of his approach. Is the carefulness, and you know the rich content of his films, lends itself to repeated viewing. And he often used that analogy. And again, I think this is part of his legacy for contemporary filmmakers: is that you know his films aren't throwaway things; they're not they're not to be consumed and then discarded. You come back to Kubrick films over and over again.
4: So, no question. You-
3: Yeah, and your point about black hole is that it obviously touched you at a particular time, and, you know, reception theory tells you all about situatedness and subjectivity in that kind of process of of audience reception. And, you know, we know when we hear music or we see something and, you know, you get out of the wrong side of the bed or, you know, something may touch you and you go back and think, oh, it wasn't so good, or wow, I didn't see that. Kubrick deliberately built layer upon layer upon layer Mm -hmm. of complex, intertextual material that he knew interested him. He was making films for him, and he was fortunate enough that he struck a chord that resonated cross-culturally, internationally, intergenerationally, partly because of that richness and partly because he had that sensibility, um, an artist sensibility, and that paid off commercially because it meant that, you know, people would come back and see his films. There'd be endless uh you know, rescreenings, remasterings, you know, yes. videos, DVDs, what have you.
4: Yeah, yes. I mean, uh, at this point Spielberg is uh repeating himself but uh with different words saying the same thing about Stanley uh having a fail safe button that once you start it, if you are channel surfing and then you come on halfway through a Kubrick movie, you end up leaving it on. Um Because I I think like a lot of uh, people who were part of the the home video revolution, those of us who are old enough to remember when, you know, we had to ride our bike to see a movie theater, uh, to see a movie in the theater if you wanted to see it more than once. Um, There was no VCR and and no one had HBO. And then to have that and go through that, I mean, that's that's how I became introduced to him myself was just because The Shining was on so often. And I've, I've told this story before, but. I was still young enough that I wasn't trying to think about whether or not I even liked it. I just knew that I was kind of hypnotized by it. And that still stands as a testament to the layer upon layer that you mentioned being so rich in in his work. It's just all interwoven in such a way.
3: And I think there was that sense, um, I think Martin Scorsese says this, that you know, you would wait, you would wait for the next Kubrick film, and mm. sometimes you had, to, you had to wait seven years. Oh, yeah, um, or, or longer. And also, what would happen was that films would uh, disappear in the sense that they would go out of uh, circulation or distribution, sometimes mm-hmm. they were deliberately withheld and they'd get a re release. Mm-hmm. So, there would be an event status to these things. So, the old art house uh, screenings of crappy, you know, 35mm prints that may have been scratched to, you know, beyond really recognition, they would be removed and you'd have to wait some time until another print was released years later. So there was a lot of canny marketing, um, you know, nuance around Kubrick's re-releasing, exposing to new generations um, his films. So in this era of, you know, online streaming or, you know, immediate access to, to much of this content, whether it's through illegal, you know, bit torrenting or through streaming services. What that means also now is that you have a, a generation of people that are coming to these films that can stop, freeze frame, rewind, mm. watch it anytime they want, whenever they want, wherever they want. And that's a total different kind of reception and sensibility than what you had sitting in a cinema with a bunch of people yes. at a- Um, which was like a public screening. So it's fascinating for me to think that, you know, we now have um, a a post-1999 one-generation group of uh, filmmakers or audiences or prosumers Mm. or what have you that are getting switched on to Kubrick's legacy and they will approach it in a very different way, Mm. Um, my generation and your generation.
4: Yeah, that's well said. And, uh, it just remains to be seen what they do with it. Given the, uh, the tools, the technology they have, hopefully the perspective is brought into the mix because, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's one thing to have all that and to be a Kubrick fan, but it's another to, uh, say like we will, you know, there will never be another Stanley Kubrick, but no one should try to be just, you know, take from him, uh, the best that you can and then go make your own film.
3: Um, yeah, and I think that's that's the important thing where people can be inspired by other works. I mean, Kubrick was clearly inspired by other works. He oh,
5: yeah. yeah. He
3: didn't replicate them. He wasn't a clone in the same way that, you know, Malick or other people um, are inspired by Kubrick, Jim mm-hmm. Cameron, you know, you name it. There's any number of people and, you know, the, the legacy, the introduction and the conclusion – gestures to this but it's also not just cinema it's theater yep. it's music uh you know there's all kinds of exhibitions that um where kubrick's art and i mean that in the broader sense kubrick as an artist has impact uh today and will no doubt continue into the future
2: mm.
4: yeah i i think that's a safe bet it does seem to be ever expanding at this point and uh one can only wonder what he'd uh, think of it now especially that uh, now that uh, social media has really you know become such a indispensable part of our so-called real life
3: well imagine if i tried to get a, a chapter written on kubrick memes
4: yeah right right
3: exactly where would that ever end i mean where where do you draw the line where do you (laughs) stop chronologically that's a
4: great (laughs) point that's a great point mick yeah i mean just googling that would give you a headache before you even took pen to paper (laughs) um but let me let me go back and ask because this is tying in actually um we know that he did a little voice performance in Full Metal Jacket. He's the voice of Murph on the other end of the radio. Uh, mm-hmm. the radio, And although it's only his voice, um, but also he uh, was the sound of the breathing inside of uh, Kier DeLay's suit in 2001, A Space Odyssey. I-, I guess you'd call these audio recordings more than you were performances. Is that why uh, they were not included in your chapter?
3: well look again it's um but you you have deadlines you have word counts um mm. you know so it's it's it was my um editorial decision what to include there are a couple of footnote gestures to these things
5: mm-hmm.
3: um so they're in the footnotes so people as as Kubrick said the the real actions in the footnotes in a lot mm-hmm. of these works <laughs> so i encourage people to rifle through through those um and also in the other post-Kubrick collection for Screening the Past from 2017. Mm. Um, There's lots of material there. But, yes, I mean, I think there's a difference between being a kind of completist around I've got to capture everything and put everything Mm. in there. And what I was trying to do was look at what I thought um, were the more important and major things with some gestures to, you know, lesser known um, or indicative things. Mm. So I, I wouldn't, for a moment, disregard you know Kubrick's performance in Full Metal Jacket or or the importance of that breathing um, in 2001 because sonically, I mean Kubrick's yeah. attention to detail in sound. Again, I mean I, I work at a university where there's a very uh, strong production component to media arts and. Many of the sound people involved in that draw from Kubrick's work, along with a lot of others. But, mm-hmm. you know, I mean, I don't know how many times I've watched and listened to Dr. Strangelove, but the sound design in that is just phenomenal. Yeah. Yeah, but again, getting back to those two, um, Full Metal Jacket and uh, the The Voice and The Breathing in 2001, oh, you, mm-hmm. you know, given – given his reflection and reluctance to do the uh, D.W. Griffith Award, you can imagine how laborious it must have been for him to get it right, Mm. you know, to be satisfied with his own performance, whether it's breathing. But, I mean, the whole point of doing the breathing um, was that he couldn't trust anyone to get it right. In the same way when he did the handheld filming, he Mm. knew exactly what he wanted. And to be able to kind of describe that up close to a DOP over mm. their shoulder in real time shooting things mm. so you can understand the pragmatic reason for him doing this um but then again i mean that exhibitors trailer there's you know coughings and you know the odd stumble here and there he could have easily edited those out but he didn't so he probably did it in one or two takes which yeah <laughs> is very different from what he did with the dw griffith award but you know putting a soundtrack to a, a exhibitor's trailer for Dr. Love versus addressing your peers <laughs> in Los Angeles at the end of your career, you can understand why he was probably a little bit more careful and thoughtful about. Um,
4: yeah. Doing- sure. Sure. I do like listening to the exhibitor's uh, trailer uh, because, I mean, you nailed it. He must've done it in one or two takes. We don't have, it's just shy of 17 minutes long. And, mm. and, you know, you have 17 minutes of just listening to him talk and cough and, you know, kind of futz through. Like you hear some papers. He's rustling papers. That's right.
3: That's you right. know. <laughs> but, but also uh, it's, the, it's the timbre of his voice. I mean, I love the delivery where he says, here we see George Scott and Tracy Reed in a Washington, yes. D.C. hotel at 3 a.m. in the morning catching up on some paperwork yeah now, yeah But <laughs> I mean, the point is he's delivering it so flat and so straight of course the gag is catching up on some paperwork at 3am right, right.
4: <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah he definitely had a, a a timbre to his voice and a way to uh deliver humor in a, a very dry well it was just him being you know who he was he, if he thought something was funny he didn't need to overemphasize it i i think that's in a sense part of uh being a a, a new york jewish kid and i mean that as a, a a compliment that you know there's a certain uh well i think this is funny so i'm not gonna go out of my way to uh over explain myself you know
3: and i yeah, get to but also <laughs> you're right but at the same time he knew his audience he knew he was doing an explanatory piece to a bunch of exhibitors out in the stick somewhere right so he, he didn't labor that line, but he did it with just enough inflection to for those that may not have got the gag for okay, the I'm for right. the
4: situation yeah. exactly right for the situation that's what he said that's what he's saying in uh, in in the shining when they're talking about different lenses. I think we should go we could use this one. I'm not sure if that one's to, maybe we go with the uh, with a, Bring me that lens. I want to see how that one works for the situation. <laughs> <laughs>
5: uh,
4: that's for James, by the way, because James always references that quote, James Maranaccio. He always kind of slips that in. It's one of those really in-in-inside jokes for us Kubrick geeks. From us previously having you on the show, we know that your specialist area is in the thermonuclear history of our planet and, of course, Dr. Strangelove. Um, have you heard about the new 4K restoration and the accompanying short documentary, Kubrick considers the bomb?
3: Um, look, I've definitely heard that the 4K is either out or about to get uh, a limited release um, in Europe, I think, and the UK. I'm not sure whether it's getting a an American release. Um, and also I understand that there's a, a tie-in uh, new documentary. So, I mean, anything that shines a light on the continuing possibility of, as Kubrick said, um, an act of madness, miscalculation or accident mm. that may lead to thermonuclear conflagration is a good thing. Um, I'd also be very curious to see what contemporary audience... Not only in the kind of Trump-Putin era, Mm. but the sense of its comedic impact, whether it um, would be regarded as lame to a 15, 20-year-old today or not. Mm. Um, I I occasionally have public screenings where I'm invited to talk, and mostly they've been in the UK and in Australia. But audiences, I guess they kind of select, you know, to attend those kinds of screenings. So they, they're usually predisposed towards the film or they know something about it or the or mm-hmm. the comedy. But, yeah. Um, yeah, I'm curious to see how the short film, for example, whether or not it talks about, you know, the revelation that uh, the Soviets have had, a doomsday uh, system in operation since the 1980s,
5: mm-hmm. and that
3: Putin Putin has um, recently uh, announced a range of nuclear weapons – um, the you know hypersonic or that can deliver a uh submarine launch?
4: Did you, yeah, I was gonna ask, to did you?
3: Yeah.
4: Photos are on the uh the major news outlets as of this week that uh the Russians uh released. They, I, I i looked at the sub they're talking about, it's capable of releasing you know a- anything, it's 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 epic destruction. All I could think of was hunt for red October. I mean, there's these shots of it, um, uh, in dry dock and these little ant like men standing underneath it. And it just looks like a gargantuan, you know, black mass of death. And, and immediately I being a, a child of the movies, I was like, "That's hunt for red October type shit, man. <laughs> but it's real. Like, sh-
3: should we be uh, scared then- now? But, but the interesting thing about this is, yes, we should be perpetually scared about this because really what Putin is doing is responding to the Obama administration's um, $1 trillion 30-year modernization of the nuclear triad. Mm. So these are a response to American initiatives mm-hmm. in the same way that the Soviet um, perimeter or dead hand uh, fail-safe nuclear system mm. was a response to what the Americans had developed by launching uh, command and control devices from Minuteman missiles that would communicate in the event of uh, detection of a, a number of nuclear weapons detonated in continental USA. So one of the things that Kubrick was absolutely crystal clear about as our most strategic analysis, analysts, I should say, is that this delicate balance of terror is precisely that, when one side has a strategic advantage, the other side will immediately fear preemption, a unilateral first strike, while there's that momentary imbalance and strategic advantage. So it's really in no one's advantage to have that momentary superiority or long staying superiority, because it, you know, when you're talking about mega death that could occur at any time, you know, almost unannounced and almost instantaneously,
5: yeah. and
3: we know the consequences potentially nuclear winter and it's all, it's all over, um, you know, the stakes are very high. And, you know, Putin being interviewed by Oliver Stone when Stone showed him Dr. Strangelove in the Kremlin, you know, mm-hmm. one of the things he said was "It's it's even more dangerous now than it was at that time. Mm. So when you have one of the leaders of the two, you know, ostensible superpowers, you know, telling you that, you know, things are actually more dangerous now than they used to be when Kubrick made this film. Yeah, you know, That's ca- time to kind of wake up and smell the coffee. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is indeed.
4: Well, I guess here we are trying to not worry and love the bomb or, or laugh at the bomb anyway, because that seems to be – it's it's coming back around again. It I, 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 hasn't been I, away.
3: That's that's No, that's the yeah. It's, uh, the point is that, you know – and I, 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 I discuss um, Marvin Minsky's kind of anecdote about, you know, Kubrick railing at the um, lack of attempts at dismantling um, the superpowers, both superpowers' nuclear arsenals. And Minsky, and he said, you know, like, sh- can't someone do something about this? And Minsky reminded him, well, you know, Stanley, you kind of did probably one of the most substantial kind of interventions, you know, with your film oh yeah, that's yeah, right. Yeah. You know,
4: <laughs> you
3: know we, we need to be constantly on the case around this stuff.
4: Yeah, because i it, it it really doesn't ever seem to go away. It's the whole Oppenheimer, you know, what have I done uh thing because now that Nuclear weaponry, thermonuclear war is—you know—once it was introduced into the planet Earth, as made by man, there's no, there's no getting that genie back in the bottle. I think all
5: three of us on this call are old enough to remember when the, when the came down. Please clear
1: this channel. This is gal requesting that you clear this channel immediately. Or, you
4: know, the, the, the Cuban Missile Crisis and the standoff and the. Khrushchev, Kennedy, you know, detente. This, channel.
1: this is GAL requesting that you clear this channel immediately.
4: We got a bunch of great music. We got rock bands that long hair and dress like women with makeup and down come the wall. <laughs>
2: and, and, and Roger Waters does it, like, plays the wall at the wall. Yeah, exactly. Roger Waters, like,
4: you know, tears it down himself and we're all. Like, yay, here comes the future. But fast forward to uh you know, twenty eighteen and, and you know, you got this yeah, having temper tantrums on social media. And so we are stuck with a new form of Cold War. Um yeah, or where-
3: but, but again, with, with a lot of these uh personalities to be using a kind of kind word, they're, they're really the tip of the iceberg. Um, oh, of you know, it's the superstructures that support them, that um, feed them, you know whether it's the oligarchs or the military industrial system, what have yes. you. Yes.
5: Um,
3: yes. What you're looking at are a persona and it's very easy to be distracted by you know what may be the foibles of any individual, but um, it's a bit like the, the yes Minister uh, comic series, the yes Prime minister series. It's the superstructures that are in place that are immovable. (laughs) You know, people come and go in those positions, but the apparatus, the mechanisms, the industries, the economies, the geopolitics that sustains this insanity of mutual assured destruction um, is what needs to change.
4: Which is to say Trump is not the disease, he's the symptom.
3: He's of in a long-running series of um, yes, yeah. symptomatic um, personalities from, you know, the Cold War. But, of course, you know, that's just an extension of uh, behaviours and processes. Um, you know, I mean, Kubrick's films, you know, going back to Spartacus,
5: <laughs> yeah.
3: showing the same kind of politics, the same type of um, Machiavellian. You know, maneuvers for advantage or disadvantage, um, and a lot of that's tied into patriarchy. You know, pure mm-hmm. and simple, masculinity, patriarchy. Yeah, uh, business as usual.
4: Yeah, no, that's well said. Well, I just want to ask you one more uh, question, Mick. And is there uh, anything you have in the pipeline you can share with our listeners?
3: What I'm waiting on now is the page proofs for a co-authored monograph on the Mad Max quartet that concentrates on trauma and disability, uh, mythology, and um, that should be out in about three to four months' time. That's with Pelgrave, and my co-author is Katie Ellis, and I'm right now completing another monograph with the co-author Stuart Bender on virtual reality and uh, concepts of empathy and affect, and that's also a Pelgrave title, and that'll be out by the end of the year.
1: Hello, Earthlings. I am G.A.L., your artificially intelligent host. I would like to apologize for the audio malfunction towards the end of the interview. We have been experiencing some interference from outside and unwanted sources. Thanks to Mick Broderick for talking with us about his new book, The Kubrick Legacy, which is available now from Rutledge. If you are in Austria, the Netherlands, Norway, the Republic of Ireland, Spain, Turkey or the United Kingdom. Don't forget the new 4K restoration of Doctor Strange Love in theaters accompanied by Matt Wells new short film Stanley Kubrick considers a bomb. Be sure to check the screening dates at parkcircus.com. Please rate and review our show, although in 25 episodes, over almost 18 months, we have only managed to get a handful of reviews including Jason's mum, Steven's daughter, and fellow Kubrick's Universe podcaster, Mark Lance. But we understand that people are lazy, er, I mean busy, smiley face. Thanks as always to Jason, James, Mark, and Stephen. Now we're gonna leave you with a fantastic track called Kubrick by Tuxedo Moon, in a DJ style. Really? I can't perform in a DJ style. So, you will just have to accept the way I am.
0: Kubrick's universe
2: we just live in it we have taken very
4: thorough precautions in this podcast against broadcasting anything which might only be attributed to human
5: error
0: thank you for listening to the Stanley Kubrick podcast
5: Come back soon!